How much do nutrition, environmental factors, exercise, and psychoneuroimmunology play in the role of helping your patients prevent and manage cancer? Perhaps more than you might think. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, and with me today is Dr. David Servan Schreiber. He is a clinical professor of psychiatry at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine and the co-founder of the Center for Integrative Medicine. He's also a founding member of Doctors Without Borders and continues to work in international crisis intervention. Welcome to ReachMD, David. Oh, thanks for having me, Leslie. Uh, David, uh, your book is amazing. Uh, for those who haven't read it, it's called Anti-Cancer, A New Way of Life. And, of course, it, you start off with telling your own story here. Could you share it with our listeners, please? Sure. I mean, I hope it doesn't happen to any of them. But, you know, I, I was a NIH-funded scientist. I had a, an MR research lab at the University of Pittsburgh doing functional neuroimaging. And one night, uh, one of the subjects slotted for the experiment didn't come. I didn't want to waste the scanner time, so I got into the scanner myself. And that's how I discovered that I had a brain tumor, which was uh, malignant. Wow. I can't even imagine what must have gone through your head, uh, literally, your, <laughs> your, your thoughts as, as you're looking at yourself on the scanner. Right. Well, you know, it wasn't in the plans. I was 31 years old. I had about 13 or 14 years of post-high school education at that point. And after a PhD in medical school, I was in the middle of residency. You know, I, I had invested heavily into the future. The plan wasn't for it to stop right there. So it was a bit of a shock, as it is, in fact, for most cancer patients. You know, the day they learn about it is often a pretty traumatic day. Hmm. Now, one of the things you write about, which is certainly my experience as well, is that traditional treatment of cancer basically says that there's nothing you can do um, for yourself short of continue to make your appointments and do your chemotherapy or radiation therapy. But you found that to be not true. Well, I want to say from the start that I had conventional treatment and, you know, it saved my life. And I've never advised anybody to try to shortcut that because to date, there's nothing else that has the same track record of proven benefits for cancer. So I had, you know, had surgery twice. Second time it was after I relapsed, and, and I had 13 months of chemotherapy, and it saved my life. But what I found is, at the end of chemotherapy, I had the same question that most of our patients have when they go through chemo and they're done: is they come back and they say, "Okay, what can I do now to help myself so this doesn't come back?" And I got the answer that 99.9% of patients get even though I was a physician, or, and it doesn't make any difference in that situation. I, I was told, well, there's nothing you can do. Just live your life normally, and we'll continue to do frequent screenings. And if, we, if this comes back, we'll catch it early next time. So what have you found out since? Well, that got me a lot of motivation as a scientist, as a physician, to hit the books and the medical literature and try to find anything I could about how I, I actually could help myself. It didn't seem right that, you know, it didn't matter what I would do. And what I found was stunning. I found that, uh, first of all, everybody has cancer cells, yet only one in three of us, which is still a lot, but only one in three of us will develop cancer. So there's got to be that there are natural defenses against cancer, preventing these cells from becoming tumors for the vast majority of people. So if there are natural defenses against cancer, then I must have them too, and I must learn how to develop them. The second thing I learned is that there's a huge literature showing that genes account for only at most 15%, probably closer to 5 or 10% of cancers. So 
what uh, does that leave us with? It leaves us with the fact that at least 85% of cancers are due to things we have some control over, our environment and our lifestyle. And then I found out reports, there's a report that was published last year from the World Cancer Research Fund, for example, that said that most cancers, that's their word, most cancers in the West are preventable. They talk about 40% of cancers being preventable just with uh, dietary changes and uh, increases in physical activity. That does not even count smoking cessation, alcohol reduction. With that on top, you can, you can go up to 80% of cancer being preventable, which still doesn't even count in the um, changes in environmental contaminants. Now tell us what you've learned about nutrition, for example. Well, I've learned that there are a number of things in our dietary habits that have crept up since 1940, the Second World War, around the same time that the cancer epidemic really started to flare up in, in our country. And some of these ingredients that have kept coming up in our food are linked to cancer growth in the body. One of the main ones is, as surprising as this may be to many of our colleagues, is, is sugar, refined sugar. It turns out that cancer cells, being abnormal cells, they only feed on sugar. They can't feed on proteins or fat. They feed on sugar. In fact, we use PET scans with radioactive uh, glucose to detect the presence of cancer in the body because of that property. And it also turns out that uh, as we increase sugar consumption, which went from 12 pounds per person per year in the 1800s to 154 pounds per person per year in 2000 in, in America, as we increase uh, sugar consumption, we make blood sugar go up, which releases insulin and IGF-1, the insulin-like growth factor, uh, resulting in inflammation in the body, a low-grade chronic inflammation that is a bed for uh, cancer multiplication and spread through metastasis. So uh, it sounds like the obvious solution is to eat less refined sugar. That's right. And not only you know, the white sugar that we might put in our coffee, but of course the sugar that's in soft drinks. And nobody realizes that uh, in one can of Coca-Cola, there are 15 packets of sugar of the type you find on the typical restaurant table. So you need to reduce that and also reduce white flour, the white bread, white bagels, flour of muffins, and, and so on, because white flour is uh, very rapidly metabolized into uh, glucose, which raises blood glucose, and results in the same release of insulin and IGF that feed cancer growth. Mm -hmm. So looking at the glycemic index of foods, that's an important thing? Absolutely. In fact, the you know, glycemic index of food is one of the best ways to control diet in terms of uh, blood glucose. But I actually believe that soon you will see that every oncologist in the country within a few years will be monitoring uh, hemoglobin A1C of their patients because you don't want a cancer patient to have an A1C that's uh, above 5.4, really, because that's a sign that you know, they're releasing too much uh, insulin and IGF. Uh, IGF induces cell multiplication, including cancer cell multiplication. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. David Servan-Schreiber, the author of Anti-Cancer, A New Way of Life. We are discussing the strategies described in his book to hopefully prevent cancer. Back to nutrition again, David. Does organic make a difference? We always encourage our patients to eat more fruits and vegetables, but should it be organic? Well, this is a very common question, and the quick answer to this is that it's much better to eat broccoli even if it has pesticide residues on it than to not eat broccoli. All of the studies concur on that point. 
What's important is to get those vegetables that contain anti-cancer phytochemicals like the sulforaphane, indole-3-carbonyl of, of the whole cabbage family, broccoli, cauliflower, Brussels sprouts, cabbage, and so on. It's much more important to get those in than the pesticide residues might do in terms of damage. But if you can get organic, it's clearly better because there are also studies showing that kids, for example, that eat uh, a conventional uh, diet of vegetables and fruits and meats have levels of pesticide residues in their urine that for some of them may be four times higher than what is tolerated by the Environmental Protection Agency. Uh, whereas when they move to a 75% organic diet, they no longer have these pesticide residues in their urine. So there, it does make a difference, especially as pesticides, for the most part, are xenoestrogens, meaning that they do key into the estrogen receptors and stimulate their action in much the same way that natural estrogens do. In fact, uh, the pesticide residues can change the sex of frogs in our rivers from male to female frogs. Now, how about exercise? Of course, it makes sense that people are healthier, but what does the oncology literature say about exercise in connection with cancer? In a couple recent studies, uh, very large ones with leading to uh, fascinating commentaries in the Journal of the National Cancer Institute, for example, showing that women who have had breast cancer, if they walk, walk 30 minutes, six times per week, and that could mean walking to work and back from work. These women have a 50% reduction in the risk of relapse from their tumor. Now, this is enormous because the best drug we have for the prevention of relapse in breast cancer is Herceptin, which works only for women who are HER2 positive and uh, doesn't do better than that. It reduces relapse rate by 50%. And nothing prevents our patients from taking Herceptin and walking mm. to work. Mm-hmm. So it is a very important discovery, one that fits well with the people who've been working with lifestyle modification in health and disease and in cancer, who've known for a long time that patients who are healthier overall through nutrition, through exercise, uh, tend to tolerate treatments better and to live longer anyway. Now, how about psychoimmunology? That's always a mouthful to say. What do we know about its impact on cancer prevention? Well, in fact, you even skipped the neuro. (laughs) Yeah, it was too hard to say. (laughs) (laughs) Well, PNI is easier to say. It has also made great strides in in the last several years. There's uh, pretty good evidence that people who meditate as a way to manage stress, for example, tend to have higher levels of circulating antibodies after a vaccination such as the flu vaccine. And that works not only in Tibetan monks, but in executives in a biotech company in Wisconsin where it was studied. And they, they had to learn how to meditate and practice once a day for eight weeks. Eight weeks later, they uh, were spurting out more antibodies when injected with a flu vaccine than a control group. So there, there are effects of meditation on the immune system. We also tend to measure it in terms of the interleukins or cytokines that are secreted by people who meditate and people who don't. So we do see these, uh, these kinds of effects, and we understand better now how they come about. I loved what you wrote in your book about the commonalities between saying the Ave Maria, for example, and certain uh, Buddhist sort of chanting. Can you fill us in on that? This was an interesting discovery in an Italian psychophysiology lab where the fellow was working on biological rhythms. And he knew, of course, about the entrainment that uh, the respiratory rhythm has on other rhythms, such as the variation in, in cardiac rhythm but also the variation in blood pressure fluctuation or the um, velocity of 
blood flow through the uh, carotid artery. So he was looking at all these rhythms, and he uh, realized that he, as a control task, he, he had given people the, the task of reciting the Ave Maria in Latin, which all, everybody knew by heart in his region of uh, Italy, in uh, Lombardy, I think. And he realized that when people were doing that, there was no better instruction to have them synchronize all of their physiological rhythms. And then he learned that the Ave Maria came from Arab traders who itself had picked up rhythms that came from Buddhist mantras, such as the Om Mane Padne Om. And he had people practice the Om Mane Padne Om in his lab, and he found that that too, because it induces a breathing frequency of six per minute, induces the synchronization of all number of biological rhythms that are associated with a better functioning of the immune system and so on. Mm, amazing. Well, thank you so much for sharing your experiences with us today. Thank you, Leslie, for having me. Uh, we've been speaking with Dr. David Servan Schreiber about anti-cancer strategies. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. 